Welcome to this week's episode of Esports Wrap. I'm your host, Michael Amorgan, and today with us we have two very special guests. One is Blaine Grabois. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's the the uh, one of the pronunciations, happily. <laughs> okay. And Ian Smith. Now, Blaine is the CEO of GameCo, and Ian Smith is the president president right no commissioner commissioner my yeah, apologies <laughs> commissioner for the esports integrity commission and so i'd just like to give them um, a right. chance to uh speak about themselves a little bit blaine if you can start excellent thank you michael and great to uh be on this with you ian i'm the co-founder and ceo of gameco we started GameCo to bring video games and esports to the casino market. Our first product was the video game gambling machine, which allows for single player and now multiplayer esports style gambling on casino floors. Proud to announce that our platform was approved in Nevada last Wednesday and excited for land based casinos to reopen in the near future. And we've also started offering one of the leading esports data products for casinos and sportsbooks from a company called Grid, where we are their official exclusive partner for North America. Okay. Ian, if you could give us a brief overview of yourself and what you do. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm the commissioner of the Esports Integrity Commission. We were formed uh, back at the end of 2015 and officially launched in July of 2016 to provide an industry regulator, so to speak, a voluntary regulator for integrity issues across the esports industry. So basically, we provide a set of regulations dealing with integrity threats, player code of conduct, an anti-corruption code dealing with betting, and an anti-doping code dealing with doping. So basically, we're here to deal with cheating in esports, both cheating to win and cheating to lose. And uh, I head that up and we uh, operate on a voluntary basis with members who come from, firstly, the esports industry. Uh, one of our founder members was ESL, alongside DreamHack, Blast Premier, uh, LVP, UMG, a bunch of esports companies. And on the other side, uh, a large representation from the esports betting industry who help us identify suspicious and unusual betting so we can take action against uh, match fixes and cheats. Very nice. So I think it comes as no surprise to anyone that when I have someone here who's pro esports, uh, betting, gambling, I would have someone who also deals with making sure that things are dealt with correctly. And so that's why I have both sides of the coin here. Um, myself, I'm the president for the Bahamas Esports Federation. So this also kind of ties into my hat on that as aspect, aside from being the talk show host. So this is quite an interesting topic for me as well. But Blaine, uh, you would have mentioned your video game machine, video game gambling machines, which, if I remember correctly, is initialized as VGM. And how does that really differ from the typical slot, slot machine or um, some of these machines that I see inside the, the casinos where 
they have things that look like uh, Temple Run or, uh, you know, connect these three gems together and you kind of win. How, do, how does this really differ? Sure. Slot machines are amazing products that have evolved over more than a hundred years. And to your point, Michael, there are a number of licenses and game themes in the slot industry that definitely leverage the brands and excitement and kind of entertainment value of video games and, you know, other, other entertainment as well, like TV and movies and music. But at GameCo, we created the video game gambling machine to bring real video game gameplay and a skill-based wagering outcome to the casino floor. So our hardware and software platform does utilize much of the standards and regulation and technology of slot machines. And that was one of our strategies to enter the market and provide the, the product into the largest number of jurisdictions worldwide. But the player is truly playing a video game and with our latest generation four technology, which we call Gamer's Edge, we are actually able to provide an experience for a skilled player where they will have the opportunity to win more money based on their skill and strategy in the game than the average player. And that's really the heart of what makes our games different from slot machines. And what we see in practice is that more than 80% of the wagering on our games is from Gen X and millennial audiences. And that's really the important part with video games and esports is a player centric strategy of attracting and monetizing what we call casino gamers, the next generation of casino customers. And to compare that 80% stat to slot machines, only 20% of the coin in or wagering on slot machines comes from that same audience. Okay, so what really makes this Gamer's Edge a thing? Like, how do you determine if someone has better skill? So we don't actually determine if someone has better skill because our games fit into the regulation of what's called Class 3 Gaming. And the important aspect of Class 3 Gaming here is that Previous wagers and future wagers are independent. Every wager is essentially a discrete event. What we do is we have different algorithms in the game that leverage what is called overhold from non-optimal play to make larger payouts to skilled players. So to uh, share what that means in layman's terms, imagine that you have a match three style game and we set a benchmark that says, you have to match seven symbols to get the highest possible return. Matching five or six symbols provides a lower return than matching seven. And matching three or four provides a still lower return. That difference between the return on three, four, five or six versus seven goes into what we call the gamer's edge meter. And then we challenge the player to do things like match eight or more. And when that player does match eight or more, they get a payout from the gamer's edge meter based on their skill and strategy. So we're able to combine the gameplay itself with the math, a good experience for all players, but an enhanced experience for the most skilled players 
by giving them specific game challenges to chase in the game. So in an example of a game like that, the player wants to manipulate the board to be able to find those larger matches to be able to get those bigger payouts. We're not actually tracking their skill. We're simply rewarding them for those specific game outcomes. Okay, so I noticed that you had a on your website, you have a video that has quite a number of games on it, setting which kind of games that you guys offer. Things like Hoops, Riches of the Golden Dragon, um, Steve Akoi's uh, Mega Dream, I think that says. Soul Calibur 2. Steve Aoki's Neon Dream, yeah. Neon Dream, that's it. Yes. Um, the one that kind of caught me by surprise was Soul Calibur 2, and then it said Casino Edition. Um, but let's actually touch on that one right there. How does something like that work with Soul Calibur? Sure. So, you know, one thing you noted is the wide variety of genres. And we always say we make everything from casual to core games. And we want to give operators the ability to program and merchandise their floor for all of their customers. Soul Calibur is really unique because this is the exact same version of Soul Calibur 2 that we all grew up playing over the last two decades. It was built by the team at Bandai Namco in Japan on our platform. And when that launches later this year, it actually has three gameplay modes. It has a single player gameplay mode that in many ways works like the arcade version of the game. It doesn't necessarily have the ability to win a lot of money. It's what we would call a low volatility game, but it gives players a lot of time on device. What's really exciting about it are the multiplayer arena modes that we support in the game. And this is one of our first two games that will be launching with our multiplayer arena technology. So the head-to-head mode allows you and I to play each other on two separate machines at the casino. We each wager, let's say, $10 or $100. That goes into the pot. The house takes a rake, and the winner gets the pot. So that is a 100% pure skill-based game where you and I are playing head-to-head and the best player is going to win the pot. And then we also have a bracketed esports-style mode where up to 32 players can play in true esports-style brackets, either for cash or prizes, again, on the casino floor. And the key part of this, as well as the esports Uh, betting solutions that we're offering in the market is to provide casinos with ways to truly tap in and monetize the excitement and opportunity around esports through actual gambling and wagering on these games. Okay. So, Ian, um, based off of all of that, and I know you and I have had some conversations in Gap about regarding gambling and esports in the past. Um, are there any thoughts or concerns about how this may lead the industry in a particular way? I'm not particularly concerned by the uh, the core proposition that, uh, that that Blaine's been talking about here. Because of the licensing provisions and the, the, the checks and balances in place, we know that the sort of integrity threats that we're concerned with as an organization are not really relevant to the playing of these machines. 
because firstly to to cheat to win is really really difficult in these closed systems and there's a lot of monitoring inside the casinos because not only is Gameco a licensed company, but of course the venues in which they place their machines are licensed premises. And so there's all these, these existing checks and balances that apply as much to existing casino operations and, uh, and slots and these sort of things as, uh, as anything else. So that side of the business is, is not really a big concern to me from an integrity point of view, because it's hard to see how people are going to manipulate the system other than being you know, good or bad at the game. Uh, that's not to say people won't try, but that's Blaine and, uh, and, and his, his customer's problem to, to deal with. You know, there, there's no end to the ingenuity of cheats. I, I've been in this area you know, of work in traditional sport for 20 odd years. And every time I think that you can't be surprised by what somebody will try, something happens that's surprising. So I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that you know that there's no problem here. I'm just saying that there's uh, there's nothing that I can see being a problem, particularly from an integrity point of view. Uh, so really, it's around the the betting on esports that I'm concerned, rather than, for example, peer to peer betting in in one v one on Salt Caliber two. Because you know there's a winner and a loser there, uh, and there's very low risk to both Gameco and, uh, and in fact, no risk to Gameco and 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 the casino client. So I, you know, I, I, this element of it really doesn't worry me. Okay, so I'll use an example of one of the casinos that we have here in Bahamas. Um, I'm not going to state the name, but they have a section of their casino that's actually set up for sports betting. And so that kind of then leads me to start to question if something like this was to come here and then they decide, well, why don't we also start betting for esports like that for the games that we have in our casino? Does that then start to tie into what you're really being concerned about, Ian? Yeah, I mean, very much. And, and, and that's an entirely different story because what what applies in the circumstances that you've just outlined also applies to any betting on esports, which is to what extent can you ensure that the participants are doing their best to win, right? Particularly where you create an environment where it may be better for them to lose. That, and, and this is what gambling introduces, right, to any situation in sport where the nature of sport is, is, is basically pure competition between two people or two teams doing their very best to win uh, on quite literally a, a level playing field. The minute, you, the minute you provide an incentive for somebody to underperform, you, you've got a problem, you've got a potential problem. And this is, this is going to apply whether the casino you've you've uh, talked about there says okay we we've got these two guys or these two teams playing each other on one of blaine's machines not only are they betting against each other or against the house but we're going to open this up to our sports floor and, and and people can bet on who they think is going to win that's that's where potential corruption uh, sinks in and that's where you've got to introduce measures to make sure that that doesn't happen around um, 
firstly, having the right rules and regulations in place, education of those particular participants, and very, very careful monitoring of the betting to spot any kind of unusual or suspicious activity. So that does change the game. Uh, but that, that applies to the betting on any sport, um, because that's when it, you know, that, comp that competition between two people suddenly becomes relevant to a whole bunch of other people. When it's only relevant to the two of them, it's like, well, yeah, no problem. The minute it's relevant to more people, uh, you, you, you've got a potential problem. And I, I just want to say I couldn't agree more with, with Ian. And we certainly would not be comfortable with a casino offering what would likely be called back betting on our games in a unmonitored and uh, ultimately unsupported and unlicensed fashion. You know, to Ian's point, we are a licensed gaming manufacturer where we provide esports betting data. We are a licensed data provider. We take the privilege of those licenses incredibly seriously. And the integrity of our games and the outcomes in those games around wagering is, is paramount to us. So if we did hear about something like that, it's something we would immediately take action. It's good to know. So, touching back on the Soul Calibur, I, I, I do have to ask, why Soul Calibur 2? Why not something that's a little bit more up-to-date? So, just curious. Well, ultimately, that was the choice of Bandai Namco. And not to speak for them, but I believe their outlook is that is the classic version of the game and the most well-known version of the game and the one they wanted to, to bring to the casino. One thing about GameCo that is very unique is that in many ways we are an open platform. So we offer our API and GDK, our game development kit, to game developers and publishers who want to bring their games to licensed casinos. So in this case, that was the choice of Bandai Namco. And with most of our other games, it is the choice of our partners in our game development network. We do, of course, work with them on the game design, the math, integrating it into our platform. But ultimately, at GameCo, we want to support the creativity and the corporate strategy of our partners in our game development network. So by any chance, would it have anything to do with what you mentioned earlier about the demographics? Because those persons that seem to fit your demographic, which I think was uh, those that are like around the 30-year-old kind of range, um, they would have seen Soul Calibur 2 from back in the day, probably in an arcade or at some friend's house or something like that. So is it kind of drawing some sense of nostalgia inside of there? Absolutely. There is a, a player-centric aspect to it. Uh, I grew up playing Soul Calibur 2, and in fact, I would say it's my favorite fighting game, and I was really enthused when Bandai made the choice to bring that to our VGM platform. So absolutely, part of it is about the demographic and, and nostalgia of the game and who that would appeal to on the casino floor. I can definitely say... You know, having had the game at G2E last year, you have people that walk by, see the Soul Calibur logo or gameplay, and immediately jump back to 
when they were, you know, teenagers or 20 somethings playing the games in, in the arcade. So that player centric approach is definitely a big part of the strategy at GameCo. Okay. Now, I also remember inside that video, and I mentioned the name a little bit earlier, but there was a basketball game, I think it was just called Hoops. But um, how exactly does one, how exactly does that play into this kind of element? And can we expect other sports games? I know there's games that have started moving towards, well, not games, but sports that have started moving to the esports realm, like uh, F1, going with iRacing, and a number of other um, sports have really started to use this as a means to continue their viewership and entertainment value with their audience. Um, NBA's had NBA 2K, uh, so on and so forth, but where do we see this kind of tying into game go? So sports games is definitely a, a big genre for us. We're just getting ready to release a golf game when casinos reopen. And a big part of the idea around sports games is their accessibility, the fandom around the sport. I, you know, if I play golf or play basketball, I'm excited to play a, a digital version of the game. And there's also an aspect of it where it's very accessible to jump in and play the game. We find that people can learn how to play these games in 15 seconds. So it makes it very easy to walk up to it on the casino floor and within your first bet or two, really understand the game. Uh, you mentioned All-Star Hoops. Uh, All-Star Hoops is also another one of our multiplayer arena games. So that game has a single player mode that combines a random number generator and skill to determine the potential win and your skill determines whether you win. But it also has a head-to-head -head format that supports up to eight players playing in a competitive head-to-head -head format simultaneously or a bracketed esports-style tournament format where up to 32 people can play in a bracketed tournament. So it's a great example of how you can leverage the sports gameplay in single player, head-to-head, -head, and brackets. Okay. So one thing that comes to mind is, you know, esports is something that has been touted as, you know, it just opens up everything for anybody. Anyone who wants to play can play. So the question then becomes, well, if this is becoming betting and gambling with esports, then what happens to those persons that are under the age of 18 and are not able to really be in a gambling house, essentially, in their country, but yet they may want to go to a tournament that might be happening, like what you were mentioning with the brackets? Well, everything we do is in licensed and regulated casinos, and that's one of the things that we love about working with licensed and regulating, regulated operator partners. Uh, you would have to be 21 to be on the casino floor. Casinos are expert at managing that. So you certainly would not be able to enter a tournament on our games on a casino floor. And, you know, it's always worth mentioning the average gamer is in their early to mid 30s. The average esports fan for most games is in their mid to late 20s. So while there are certainly 
under 18 or under 21 in commercial casinos in the U.S. Uh, gamers, uh, they would not be able to play our games in a casino, but they are in no way the average target market, nor are they the largest percentage of the player and fan base out there. I think when it comes to online uh, wagering and the type of work that Ian and ESIC does, there's the question of, are you able to wager on a player who is 17 or younger in states like New Jersey? But then also it's the responsibility of the sports betting operator to do what's called KYC, know your customer, and to ensure that underage gamblers are not on the site. I'm sure Ian can touch on that a bit more. Yeah, that's exactly right, is that this is a regulatory issue. And one of the things that, that brought me into the esports industry in the first place was unregulated and unlicensed gambling on esports through the skins markets back in 2014-15, where it, it was actually quite difficult to find somewhere to place a normal cash bet on an esports uh, competition. But it was extremely easy to find somewhere to place a skins bet, uh, particularly, of course, on Counter-Strike and Dota 2, because those were the games that, that skins were invented for, so to speak. And, you know, a very, very large cash economy built up around uh, CS in particular, which also goes to explain why CSGO is by far the most popular gambling game in uh, in in all of esports. So while of course it's a tier one esport, you would you wouldn't say that in pure esports terms that it was any bigger than League of Legends, for example. But it is way bigger as a betting product. I mean, to probably four four and a half times bigger than League as a betting product. It, it makes up over forty percent of the global market of betting, and that's a direct result of skins. And so the points we're, we're making here are crucial to fair betting uh, in the sense of safe betting, safe for, for its corrupting influence on young people. We don't want under 18s betting here in Europe. And America sets a higher bar, just like you do for alcohol. You know, you can go and join the army at 16, but you, you can't have a drink until um, you're 21. Which you know, obviously, for us in Europe, we think hilarious, but that, that, that's that, that's the, the, the way things go. But what you don't want is uninformed people gambling, and I think the U.S. regulatory system, both in terms of casino and i gaming online betting, as it emerges in the post Casper repeal world, actually has got it reasonably well right. I, I'm not a big fan of, of regulation state by state by state, but nothing's going to change about that. You know, it's America, it's a federal system. I get that. But generally, the levels of regulation are actually very protective of the general population. So, yes, there are dangers in esports for sure, because we do skew younger than traditional sports. But Blaine is right. The vast bulk of the fans of, of the games that generate a lot of betting markets are above the age of 21. Uh, there are, of course, ones below that, but the system protects those people from access to it pretty well. Um, that is not a universal truth. There's a lot of places in the world where you can open yourself a gambling account with 
very, very poor KYC and age verification, and you can go ahead and gamble. Uh, and that and that's a bad thing. That that is a product of you know greed and poor regulation and non-joined up thinking in the global uh, the global gambling economy. Unfortunately, you've got probably six or seven well-regulated regions and countries and jurisdictions in gambling. And then you've got about 150 terrible ones or non-existent ones. So there's a long way to go. But in the US, I think the protections are strong. And just one more point on that uh, that I always love to raise is there's plenty of uh, under 21 or under 18 traditional sports fans. You know, uh, football, soccer, baseball, basketball, you name it in the U.S., Europe and other betting jurisdictions. So it's really no different. I mean, video games and esports may skew a little bit younger overall, but it's no different from traditional sports in that there are absolutely underage fans and it's the responsibility of licensed and regulated entities like GameCo and like casinos and sportsbook operators to live up to the privilege and requirement of our licenses and ensure that we are supporting patron fairness and KYC and age verification. And I think to Ian's point, we do that extremely well as an industry overall, particularly in the, the jurisdictions we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I would definitely back that up. Um, it, it's it's a very interesting situation worldwide now because the first thing that we always have to say in this regard, because it often gets lost, is that esports does not exist for gambling, as as most sports don't. Right? Yeah, I, I used to get a lot of complaints when I worked in cricket with people phoning up about incidences in a match and complaining because you know a captain's decision or an outcome had ruined their bet. And my standard response to that is, we don't exist for your bet, mate. You know, And esports doesn't exist for betting. But it's also noticeable that every traditional sports in the world, to one extent or another, is becoming increasingly interested in esports. And that's because we have the young demographic. We are the industry that unites an entire generation that every other sport and, in fact, every other industry would chop an arm off to have. And that's wonderful for esports, but it also gives me and, and I think many of us in the industry a sense of responsibility because we do skew young and we do have to take, you know, we have to recognize that and we have to protect our youngsters. But, you know, coming back to that final point Blaine made, in particularly in the U.S., but also in Western Europe, uh, these, these people the, who are potentially vulnerable are very well protected. What, one point just to uh, keep going on this that I, I love to raise is in many ways, esports is easier to maintain and track and enforce integrity around, particularly because it is digital and binary. So, you know, Ian just gave the example of cricket and you don't like the call that's made uh, in esports, particularly in the product that Gameco offers with Grid in North America, we are getting official data in real time from the sanctioning body, and it is binary. The fact that the bomb is set or diffused in CSGO 
or a particular outcome in League or Dota or PUBG, those are definitive outcomes. It doesn't mean that there can't be other forms of integrity issues that we have to monitor for, uh, as Ian said, like cheat to win or cheat to lose. But in terms of the actual outcomes, it is digital, binary, real time. And we were able to produce a transcript of the game events and outcomes that is available to regulators publicly so that they can maintain patron fairness for everyone. That is difficult to say in many other traditional sports because of the subjectivity of different outcomes in those sports. Well, that does kind of lead me into a topic that might be a little bit more wiry. Um, that's because there are certain countries and states that are starting to take a look at legalizing gambling for the actual like games themselves. Uh, things like Overwatch or League of Legends or Dota 2 or so-and-so. But like, how does, how should I put this? How do you see something like that affecting the market on a whole? Us on the line with what you guys do. Well, I'll just wade in here in something uh, that might be a little bit controversial because you just named some games that fit into that bucket. At GameCo, we believe that markets should only be offered for esports betting with publisher consent and don't necessarily want to get into the specifics of you know, which games and which publishers provide consent. But it's really important from an integrity standpoint that regulators are thinking about this consideration and only allowing books and operators to take wagers on video games and esports that have publisher consent. And the reason for it is it gets back to integrity and it gets back to uh, patron um, disputes and outcomes and being able to have the proper data to be able to tease back a wager and an in-game event to official sanctioned data. And I think it would be for the betterment of the industry, while we definitely want to grow this opportunity, we have to grow it in a way that fits in with regulation. So you just touched on one point, which is a jurisdiction has to allow both sports betting and sports betting on esports. My personal outlook is that esports is sports and should be treated the same. But if regulators want to treat it slightly differently than traditional sports, that's fine. But also importantly, that we as an industry are doing it in partnership and support of the game publishers as well. Yeah, I, look, I, I have much the same problem as, as Blaine has outlined there is that at the moment, there are there are games, tournaments, leagues um, that have been uh, authorized for the offering of wages in, in certain jurisdictions, in certain states that, in my view, are not safe to offer in, in that way because the tournament organizer slash publisher developer involved in arranging that league tournament match have not put the right mechanisms in place or 
or in fact, you know, sanctioned, as Blaine said, uh, the, the betting on those events. And so the underlying regulations are poor. Their ability to do anything about it is poor. They have no interest in monitoring the betting. They have no interest in providing the official data. And, and so the proposition starts off being weak. Because if something does happen, if there is a manipulation, then first of all, you know, determining that becomes more difficult. And then secondly, what are you going to do about it when it happens? Because your rules don't underpin it properly and your experience as, as a tournament organizer, league operator, publisher, um, it just isn't there. You, you don't know what you're doing. And that's, that really rings alarm bells for me. And so when, you know, with recent announcements, I was quite surprised at some of the uh, tournaments, leagues, um, matches that were authorized for betting, because I felt that not enough could be done to satisfy a regulator that that was safe. I, I would love to know what, was, what, what the regulator was told in some cases about how these leagues operate that made them think, yeah, this is a decent product for betting, because it isn't. And I, I'm curious as to the thoughts on this particular housewife. Since you mentioned tournament organizers, um, and then people that just have these betting events and so on and so forth, if someone was to have a party or just a gathering or whatever, just some event, and say, you know, come here, we'll watch the games, we'll bet on who wins. Do you feel like that is something that's something that should be concerned about? Or is it just something that's more like, eh, it's just whatever? Look, I mean, I think a, a group of people betting amongst themselves in terms of, you know, a, a, akin to a poker party or a Super Bowl party where you get, you know, 20 of your mates around to watch something on TV and you have bets amongst yourselves, that doesn't worry me at all. That's just people having fun. They're adding a, you know, a frisson of excitement to, to their experience. I've, I've got no problem with that. It happens all the time. Um, where, where we have concerns is in the typical betting situation, which is your, your average sports betting, particularly in, in, in an esports context, in tier two, three, four events, semi-pro, low-level pro events, where there's a discrepancy between what you can win by winning the event and what you can win by betting against yourself, right? So deliberately losing, mm -hmm. because there are multiple occasions, and, and I guarantee you there's, there's markets available right now today, if you go online this minute, where you could there's enough liquidity in those markets to mean that you will earn more money as a losing team by betting against yourself than you could earn by winning the game. I guarantee I could find five of them if you gave me 10 minutes. And, and that's the area of danger in, in all sports betting. But it's very prevalent in esports because... It doesn't happen as much in traditional sport because you've got a, not as many tiers and not as many competitions. And what you've got in, particularly in Counter-Strike and Dota, where you can 
you know, you and me could put up put up a tournament tomorrow, right? And we could offer a grand, you know, a thousand dollars in prize money. But if the betting companies decide that this is a viable product, a good betting company will have, for example, the ability for me to win five thousand dollars on that game. So, am I going to? because I'm a competitive being beat you because I want to beat you and win the thousand dollars or do I not care very much because there's another tournament, another five tournaments I can enter tomorrow. So I'm going to put my money again. I'm going to put my money on you and then I'm going to lose on purpose and I'm going to make $5,000. That happens all the time. And that's the problem with the esports industry is that it's very deep. You know, it, this isn't like English football, which has four divisions, right? And and you know what games are taking place. In esports, there's a Dota tournament, there's 10 of them on today. There's probably, you know, I don't know because I haven't looked, but I guarantee you there's a lot of markets available right now because there's a lot of activity. And knowing who those players are, who those teams are, is unrealistically impossible because the players transfer in and out. I'm talking low tier, you know, tier three, yeah. four. Teams form and dissolve on a daily basis. How, that, that would be like Manchester United suddenly turning up and with 11 new players in a tournament they've never played in before. And you're going to offer markets on that. No, not, not in a million years would a betting operator do that. But in esports, it happens every single day. And that's that's the danger that is different in esports to traditional sports. You know, it's the same as these guys who offer markets on third division Uzbekistan football. Why? Who knows anything about the third division of Uzbekistan football? Nobody, apart from probably 10 people who run that league. And, and that's dangerous from a betting perspective. And that happens in esports day after day after day. That's what worries me. I'm not worried about ESL one Cologne with FaZe Clan versus Liquid. I don't worry for one second about those games. I worry a lot about Team A versus Team B in the Fun Cup League Two qualifiers being run out of some guy's laptop in Minsk. That worries me. I, I totally agree with Ian, and that's exactly the nature of the product Gameco is offering in, in North America, is to be offering a product with official data sanctioned by the tournament organizer, league, or publisher, ensuring that we're working with the regulators to offer uh, top-tier events, that we know who the teams and players are, and that really importantly at the end of the day, there are rules and mechanisms in place to monitor the outcomes and enforce a negative outcome if it were to occur. Well, gentlemen, we've had quite a topic today. I thank both of you for coming on. Um, is there anywhere people can go to find out more information about GameCo or the International, well, sorry, the Esports Integrity Co um, uh, Commission? Uh, you can go to gameco.com or find Gameco on any of our social profiles or LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, and we're on 
esic.gg. Very, very easy. Everything you need to know is there. Okay. Well, that's wraps it up for this episode of Esports Wrap. Again, folks, thanks for watching. Tune in. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Or if you're watching well, the uh, some other method, then uh, tell your friends. And if you are interested more in just the audio side, we have a podcast version of this that you can listen to quite literally everywhere. Except SoundCloud. We're still working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, guys, take care. Thanks, very Thanks much. Michael. Great to see you, Ian. Cheers, YouTube, Blank.